You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. It was $5 million on the dot. And I told myself, listen, you're up like 40X-ish. Sell it all. Who cares? Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Sergio Silva, sales director at Fireblocks and former analyst at Goldman Sachs and Barclays. Before we even start, I have to tell you, there was a lot of drama involved in this episode. Right before we were due to sit down, Sergio found out he lost one of his most valuable possessions, the crypto punk that had become his digital identity. The loss spread across the internet and DeFi world, sparking an incredible effort to get it back. The entire experience said so much about who Sergio is as a person and the perils and promise of this new digital landscape that we threw out our usual format and dove right in. Enjoy this amazing conversation. Sergio, welcome to my life in four trades. Hi, Maggie. Excited to be here. Oh my gosh. So we're going to like totally blow out our usual format because we have got to talk about what just went down in the last 24 hours. So this time yesterday, we were scheduled to tape the podcast and you came on camera and you just looked horrible. I mean, you were just like, and we chatted for a minute and you said that you just lost. I didn't even hear you. I thought you said I just did a really bad trade. Frank heard you say that you just lost a really valuable punk, one of your NFTs. And we just could see the distress and pain on your face. And we were like, go, just we'll we'll reschedule, go. I mean, just walk us through a little bit. It has a happy ending. But just just walk us through what happened. Sure. So my life has been completely focused on NFTs and crypto over the last 18 months. And I guess during the podcast, we'll get through how that happened. But I've been using uh, CryptoPunk, uh, which is one of the original profile picture NFTs, as my digital identity. Um, since uh, February of last year, and it's become who I am. You know, it's my digital signature. It's on contracts at work. It's on artwork that artists have made. It's everywhere. And I had taken a decentralized loan against it as I'm trying to learn more about financialization of NFTs and and how to you know put those assets to work. I put that loan on on July 4th, and it was 30 days. I marked it on my calendar as being due on August 4th which is today. And then yesterday, I got an email as I'm sitting here, I'm working, I get an email that says, your loan has been foreclosed. And my stomach dropped. And the loan, since it was in a smart contract, it's a decentralized application, was due yesterday. And I didn't notice. And so the lender was given the punk. And that's it. I just felt like my world completely turned upside down. And it's incredible that it was such a 
I mean, I don't want to say a small mistake, but it was really just kind of like an admin mistake, right? Just miscounting the days, just not being aware completely, probably because like the rest of us, you're multitasking like crazy. Yeah. You know, I saw the date. I'm sure I put it just, you know, fat finger three instead of four and everything's happening thousand miles an hour right now with work, life, crypto, NFTs. And that's it. It was one of those kind of like the double edged sword when it comes to decentralization and being a hundred percent in charge of your assets and your actions. And, you know, mm-hmm. I never thought it would happen to me. I wasn't hacked. I didn't fall for a scam. I just pretty much pulled a self rock pull, I guess, if you want to call it that way. Yeah. So for people who aren't in this world, I want to read the tweet. You were tweeting about it almost immediately. And I was really struck by your tweets. Um, And one of the first ones was just like, I lost my punk. It was my fault. I'm totally devastated. But then later on, you had a thread that provided a little bit more information. I'm just going to read it for people who weren't, didn't have a front row seat to this drama. You put out in a tweet, thank you for the outpouring. I'm going to be real. I cried like a baby when I realized what happened. I'm really mad and frustrated at myself since this was a total self-rub, right? Your fault. Hasn't been the best month of trading either. So this is just salt on an open wound. As I explore my feelings, I realized I feel very ashamed too. What kind of idiot fails like this in public? I've also felt guilty this year playing with internet money while people in the world have so little. Even if I get my punk back, I'll be down 66K and it kills me to think that money could have gone to my nieces. There is so much to unpack in that and we'll get to it in a minute. But one of the things that struck me And there was an outpouring. I mean, there were so many people who responded to you who were, you know, saying, I hope you get this back. This is who you are. It really struck me as I read it that that was a really sort of open and vulnerable tweet thread to put out there. Yeah. You know, I think I I don't have the largest following on NFT Twitter, but I don't think I've ever gotten to 36,000 followers if I hadn't been real about my experiences in the past. And I'm grateful to the community that they've helped me learn. They've helped me do a bunch of other things. So I've always felt that, you know, there's there's value in being anonymous and kind of just mysterious. I've, I've completely gone the other way and just been trying to be open and, and try to be real. And that's the way I felt. I was very emotional, both from, you know, losing the punk and being frustrated that the way it happened, but also just the support I got, calls, texts, emails from all kinds of people, super high profile people, people that I had never talked to. And it was just very, it was, an, it was honestly like an incredible moment, very expensive mistake, but it made me appreciate the space even more. So we started slacking about it with my colleagues because after you left and we realized what had happened and we hadn't seen Twitter. So Michelle, Frank and I were sitting there, that part of the podcast team. And just when we realized the gravity of what had just taken place, first of all, I can't believe you even locked in, <laughs> locked into the podcast. Like that just is a testament to who you are. I would have been like, forget it. That's the least of my concerns right now. But we were just shaken by it ourselves and we saw your face. So we were slacking with colleagues and this carried into the night over, we were doing a live Twitter spaces and we were all sort of texting about it, WhatsApping about this on the side. And pretty quickly, the situation rectified itself, which is kind of incredible. So you got it back, but how did you end up getting it back? So that outpouring of support, all the retweets and comments, 
everybody on Twitter saw the fact that you know my punk had gone missing. Given the decentralized application where I took that loan out, there was no way of tracking the lender. We try to look through blockchain, but the you know the people don't want to show themselves, and so this particular and didn't want to show themselves. I got a Discord message from one of the moderators in the punks channel. And they said, hey, listen, somebody's saying that they know the lender to your punk. They have a punk and they want to sell it back to you. I first thought was scammer trying to get some, you know, a couple ETH out of me, whatever. Uh, but I spoke to them, obviously. And I said, listen, I, I've been scammed in the past, people trying to scam me. So prove to me that you really are in touch with the lender and unwrap the punks. So the punks are NFTs that predate the current NFT standard, which are ERC-721s. So in order to be used in like all these DeFi applications or different marketplaces, they need to be wrapped into a different smart contract. And so they went and unwrapped it. And so I knew they were for real. And so we had a negotiation and I was able to buy back my punk about six, seven hours after it had been foreclosed on. I mean, this is almost like a hostage situation. That's what that's what it felt like. I mean, certainly to those of us watching, I can't imagine what it felt like to you. This has to be the first trade we talk about. I mean, this was a round trip trade of of epic proportions with half of the internet cheering you on. What were you thinking when you got it back last night? Like what was going through your mind? Well, the first thing was, you know, you never forget the time you buy your first punk especially if it goes on to become your digital identity, like this particular punk had become for me. And I was really happy that I got to relieve that, be able to buy my first punk again. And then, so I was just very excited to buy it. That was the first thing that came to mind. And obviously the financial aspect too, I took a hit about 28 ETH. You know, that's real money and sad and frustrated, but price to pay for this world that we're trying to build. And, and you know, if it helps anybody out there, or if it helps 30 people out there, you know, I definitely value that. And if that's my contribution to the space, then great. Then after that, I was just honestly still shaking. It was like, I have, I don't think I've ever been through a roller coaster of emotions like that, at least in my adult life. And mm-hmm. so trying to just understand what was happening, why it was happening, how it was feeling, it was, it was honestly really interesting. And I know probably people are not into NFTs or thinking, oh, this is so ridiculous. But this had really become me online. And this had yeah. become, you know, I, I interact with maybe 20 people in real life every day in the office and, you know, on the street. But this is me to 40, 50,000, 100,000 people out there. And so to, to lose that and get it back, it was just... It was emotional whiplash, but I was very, very happy at the end. No, I think, listen, I'm not in the NFT world and I think I could understand. I mean, it helped that I saw your face too, which I think that that I may hold that for a long time. But I think that we can understand that because for you, it was the NFT. For other people, it might be something from their past or it might be a house they love that got rid. You know, like it, it doesn't really matter what it is. The thing is that it was part of your identity. And I do think that transcends whatever, you know, world you're living in. Do you feel more nervous about this world because, as you say, it's you've seen the risky side of the decentralized fact that one finger you have to be responsible for everything does it change the way you feel it doesn't make me feel nervous i think i was very aware obviously there's been a lot of issues especially recently with hacks and scams and phishing it just further put that in the forefront of we still need to do a lot more work 
to make it a more secure, safer, user-friendly place to transact. And I think it's going to really dictate how you know I deploy my capital, both on-chain and like personal investments, as well as at work. I think you know I work in a place where what we do is digital asset infrastructure, and I think this experience I, it, it will really help me sell the message a little better because as we deal with institutions that are coming into the space really trying to understand you know it's not just counterparty risk but it's self-custody risk in a way that yeah you have full access to your assets 24 7 but also means you have to think about them a little bit more and so yeah it's gonna have a long-lasting impact but definitely not nervous i think it makes me excited that i've experienced it so now i i, I think i look what to look for uh, or for in investments I was going back and forth on Slack with Elaine, who you know, I think, and, and is a big fan of yours. She is the best. And I was telling her, oh my God, Sergio lost his punk. Like, what's going to happen now? And she said, oh, this is a test of the system. And But we also almost both immediately said, but also of the community. And I think the community part of this is so interesting and is part of the positive story of this because you did sort of see the community come together. Yeah, no, totally. And honestly, like community is such a cliche word sometimes in the NFT space, but it's overused for a reason. It really is where the value lies in this whole thing, right? The ability to, again, I, I like to say there is no trust in trustless in that you're interacting with smart contracts and everything gets taken care of mathematically. It's just code. But when it comes to the human element behind it and the fact that so many people were not just reaching out and say, hey, sorry, you lost a six-figure asset, but how can I help you get it back? So Punk6529, which is you know kind of like almost like the luminary precedent of the NFT space, immediately reached out, tweeted out to his followers. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers, a bunch of other high-profile friends and just colleagues of the space were quick to help the word out and, and, and get the Punk back. And that really comes down to community. And I've never seen it in any other community that I've interacted with in my life. It was honestly like super positive in that sense. And I think this is so important because as we move into this universe and we spend a lot of time talking about sort of technicals and levels and, but this is the part that is really fascinating to me. You know, we've had some great interviews on talking about that. And my daughter asked me, you know, why would anybody want, I was trying to explain to her because my family was witness to the, the crazy chatter that was going on. And I tried to, I've tried to talk about NFTs before and again, from the outside, right? i hang out with you, Elaine, and, and you folks, I've been in Vegas with you, but I am not in that space, said, I don't think it's buying a, just a piece of digital art. I think you're buying a community. You're buying membership in a community too. And they're really intrigued by that, but it feels like that was true yesterday. Is that an overstatement on owning NFTs? No, I think it's funny that you mentioned Vegas because it is like a, you know, there's a big specular factor and it is like a casino and people are buying a lot of mm -hmm. tickets all day long. But at the heart of it, the people that have been here for a little longer than that, and even those people who are just here to flip, right? There is a community. It's this internet community. It brings me back to the days of like online forums where you kind of like know these people sometimes better than your regular friends. And so I think it's just a human extension of that need to belong, to be part of a, a tribe and being able to do it in a more frictionless, efficient way over the internet. That's what you're buying into. And it's not just art. And even with just regular crypto art or digital art, the community of collectors, you're able to connect with the artists directly. It's not something that you can do in the regular art world. 
And then you put it to like collectibles and the whole profile picture projects and the fact that they become your identity and you really feel part of this bigger thing. And we're all working together to, you know, kind of like preach the gospel in a way. It's, mm. it's, it's an awesome space. So I want to ask you about your Twitter thread. You didn't have to fess up that this was a mistake you made. You could have done it another way. I mean, we have history is littered with examples in traditional finance of people who just keep doubling down, who just keep trying to fix the error. I mean, they brought down investment banks doing this and not just said, I made a mistake and I made a, I really fucked up. I mean, I made a big mistake, but you did, you did it really publicly. Did you think about that or was that just instinctual? I think it was just instinctual now that we're talking about it. You know, my life experiences, it, I, I feel like it depends on the position you're in. Sometimes you can double down, you know, if it's other people's monies or you have kind of like a more of a safety net. I have never really had that or didn't have that before. And it was all about just owning up to things and learning from them and then using those experiences to make better decisions later on in life. And so to me, especially given how many people really reached out and wanted to help, I wanted to acknowledge that and be like, hey, you know, I'm not perfect. I really messed up. Thank you. It means a lot. Like your your words are not falling on deaf ears. Like I was really emotionally, you know, I, I hadn't broke down in a long time like that. Yeah, I felt uh, it just kind of, I think that's who I am. And it's funny now that I'll be on Twitter forever. It'll be good to go back to it sometimes and, and kind of like feel that again and say, okay, well, yeah. be more careful next time, you know? And you, you went just beyond that too. You talked about feeling ashamed, which is I have to tell you, extremely unusual. People have a hard time talking about that in public. Men have a hard time talking about that. I thought that was incredibly sort of brave of you to do that. And and I think really affected people. And you also talked about it not being a great trading month. It's been really hard. This has been a hard period. It's funny because I was bearish since December and it's all my Twitter on Ether and, and crypto. I put everything into stables. I didn't sell most of my NFTs. I kept the high value NFTs. And obviously they lost a lot of value in dollars. So this last couple of months, I've been trying to hedge that Ethereum exposure. And my timing has just been off by honestly, like a couple of days, sometimes even hours. And the movements are so wild and it's really hard to risk manage in, in this market. And so, yeah, I'm in a good month. It's all on chain. You know, you can go back and look through my wallets. So you can see exactly how much you know I've lost <laughs> this month. There's no point in hiding. I guess it's hard. I mean, you know, to bring attention to it, but it's there. And, and again, if it helps other people, including myself in the future, to go back at this time period and say, okay, well, this is what I was feeling. This is where I did things wrong. This is this was the wrong trade for this reason. Then, you know, it's valuable at some point. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So we're going to reverse. We've completely flipped this. So I'm going to count the NFT round trip, the amazing NFT round trip is your first trade. This is actually your second trade. And that is holding your NFTs through this period. And you did, I mean, by my calculation, we're talking millions of dollars. That's a hell of a lot of money to lose. How are you mentally dealing with that? 
And has that answer changed if I would have asked you that 24 hours ago based on what just happened? I don't think the answer would have changed. So I started with 10,000 in February when I bought the first punk. The first punk, the, the punk from yesterday was $10,000 of Valentine's weekend of 2021. Um, then I bought other punks, other pieces of art at the peak. I remember one day I woke up in the morning, Saturday morning, very early. I looked at my portfolio and it's hard to price every NFT, but you get kind of like an idea. It was $5 million on the dot. And I told myself, listen, you're up like 40X-ish, sell it all, who cares? And just go buy yourself a ranch and a 9-11. But I felt like it would be kind of me turning my back on, on a community that taught me so much and everything and actually ended up buying two more pieces that day for $80,000 each. Mm. And that was the absolute top. I wrote it down again. I was short or bearish Ethereum through almost since November, December. So I was in stables and I was feeling good about the fact that I called that ride and I wasn't really too much worried about the, the dollar value of the NFTs. Yeah, they were down, you know, 35% in dollar terms, but I still was up in Ether terms and still up massively from my initial buy-in. So you're still, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, house money? Yeah, I'd, obviously with the drops in like March, April, May, those you know, $500,000 punks became $300,000 punks, became $100,000 punks, became $50,000 punks. And so I actually bought more then because, you know, I believe in them and wanted to take advantage of it. But yeah, the mark to mark is pretty brutal from the high water mark. How do you deal with it? I think I was ready for it and that I knew Ether was going to come down. And that's kind of what I was trying to fix with now shorting Ether against the punk to hedge the FX. And so I was trying to use that as a lesson. Obviously, my execution wasn't the best one, but I was ready for it. So I kind of like understood that it could happen. I made a decision to let it happen. I could solve, but I didn't. And then do I go back? 2020 hindsight, yeah, of course, who doesn't, right? Especially with that amount of money. But I'm also still up, so it's still, I don't know, I, I, it's its weird. I feel okay about it for the most part, but it'll be a lot to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm so happy I didn't sell $5 million. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting because, and this is probably where we should get into your background, because it sound, people could say, like, oh, this is somebody who's has all this experience and is a high roller and makes millions, loses millions, makes millions, but... Tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and what you were like as a kid, because I think it will surprise people. Yeah, so I was uh, I was born in Mexico City, but I grew up on a border town called Matamoros, which is across from Brownsville, Texas, which is very near where Elon is building his space station. Uh, southernmost tip of Texas, right on the border by the sea. It was a NAFTA town, a lot of manufacturing facilities when that rolled around. And my mom's a teacher. My dad was a used car salesperson or, it, well, he was still alive, but he's no longer doing that. They made a decision to have my sister and I attend school in the U.S. so that we could learn English and change our lives. So in high school, they got us student visas and we would wake up in the morning in Mexico, have Mexican breakfast, which is great, by the way, uh, drive across the border every single day, go through customs and immigration in the car, and then go to school in the States, which, you know, everything was alien to us from the culture to the language, go to school, learn English, then come back. And over you know, a couple of years, integrate into the regular American education system. And so I would say that the best trade I, I was a part of, it was my parents who put it on, uh, but I learned English and that completely changed my life. I went to school first in Mexico for college. Again, my parents didn't go to college. 
So it's, it was hard to understand this whole, you know, application system and like mm. every, the, the student loans. It just it, it wasn't winning up. So I went to school in Mexico. And later on, I transferred over to school in, in San Antonio, Texas, UT San Antonio. And that's where I finished my college education. But, you know, going back thinking it was that decision to study in English, which was the first time I dealt with FX risk because obviously the Mexican peso moves a lot versus the dollar. <laughs> and I had seen the devaluation firsthand. Real estate in Matamoros used to be denominated in dollars, but obviously you're making pesos. So mm. the value of our home went up, you know, well, kind of the loan, the mortgage went up 3x in my parents' faces because uh, it was in dollars, but they made pesos. So that's something that just sticks with you and you'll never forget it. Uh, everything is, you think about it biculturally, by language, uh, in both languages, and then both currencies, pesos and dollars. And that's why I ended up in FX, I guess. I mean, what an extraordinary sacrifice and decision that must have been an effort on the part of your parents to do that um, and to sort of, you know, make sure that you and your sister, I think you want your sister, is that what you said? Yes, my sister, yeah. she's two years younger. Yeah, paying, uh, you know, Catholic school tuition because it was the only private school in the region while making pesos was was yeah. a big sacrifice for them and forever grateful to to them for that. Amazing. That's what parents do. So it must have been a huge, huge moment when you graduated college. That's terrific. And so did you know that you wanted to go into finance? Was making money important to you? I've always been entrepreneurial. And when I transferred schools to UTSA, I had a year off because my transcripts and everything had to be translated and this whole this process to, to be an international student. So during that year, I would sneak into the library of the school and read books on business. And mm-hmm. I found Intelligent Investor and I started following Warren Buffett and I kind of just decided, hey, I want to go do this. And I actually went to the Berkshire Hathaway Shareholders Convention one year in Omaha <laughs> Because I had read that if you were an international shareholder, you could meet with Warren and Charlie. And the B shares were like $80, but they didn't care as long as you had an international passport. And so I went there with my little Mexican passport and I met Charlie and Warren. Once I started school again, was I you know, able to enroll again, I was fully focused on hopefully finding my way into Wall Street at some point in my life. That is amazing. Do you have a picture of meeting them? I don't. They didn't let you take pictures. I yeah. do have a $100 bill signed by Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie's Almanac signed by him. And they're, they're one of some of my prized, most prized possessions. That is amazing. And you followed that dream, right? So did you end up working at Goldman Sachs? Was that right? Yeah, out of- I've been really lucky in my life. I'm not going to lie. I um, So I started a student organization called the Investment Society at UTSA because I started in summer school and the school used to be very like commuter school. Now it's mm-hmm. a full blown four year university. So there was nothing to do on campus. I said, OK, well, I'm going to start a student group focused on finance. So I started the Investment Society. We had a Bloomberg terminal for MBA students, but nobody used it. So I just camped out there the whole day. I started this student group and I found a finance conference for Wharton students. So I signed up because it was open to anybody from anywhere because obviously nobody goes to the Wharton conference because, you know, why? So I, I showed up and Lloyd Blankfein was actually the keynote speaker uh, he was still the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I remember sitting there and Q&A, nobody wanted to ask a question. I stood up, raised my hand, introduced myself. Sergio Silva from Texas, San Antonio. And the whole room just turned around to look at me like, what is this kid doing here? <laughs> 
But it was very eye opening because all these kids were, you know, going to Wall Street internships. And I realized Mm -hmm. that, you know, they knew the exact same formulas that I did. They knew the exact same ways of looking at balance sheets and income statements. It was the same stuff. They just had really, really nice university names on their transcripts. And Um, access because of alumni. Yes, yes, a hundred percent. So I managed. Here's another lucky, lucky break. I, I'm going to uh, push back on lucky yeah. in a minute, but you tell me about this lucky break. <laughs> um, one of the recruiters from Goldman was from my region, from South Texas, and the friend that I was staying with that weekend because I didn't have money for a hotel had mentioned to them that I was visiting and that I was going to this conference, and he said, "Okay, well, why don't you have him send his resume?" So I did. And this person took a liking to me because I was from, you know, I was from Brownsville. And they were like, all right, we'll, uh, we'll give you a phone interview. And I, I talked to her like ear off for like an hour and a half, talked about everything that I knew about finance and just sitting on Bloomberg the whole day. So they're like, all right, we'll fly you up to a super day. And they flew me up to a firm wide super day. So I got to interview with all the revenue divisions of Goldman for, for an internship. And this was in early 08. So just also a very interesting time to be interviewing with them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Like in the wreckage of what had happened. So it was right in the middle of the great financial crisis or had it had it not really fallen out yet? It was about to hell was about to break loose. Uh, I got the offer to be an intern the summer of 08. And once I was on the floor, I remember just I had it was honestly start of a movie, like people just smashing keyboards and people running around and yelling. It was I fell in love with it. The minute I stepped into that Goldman Sachs trading floor on it was a one year plus I was on the equity derivatives desk. You know, I expected Goldman Sachs to be like, I don't know, gold plated walls and everything and not like the monitors were on like paper racks some stuff didn't work it was just super interesting I just completely fell in love with it I was like okay they only hire one intern this summer that's gotta be me and I I got to work wow well so this is where I'm gonna push back on your luck thesis because there's a lot that you just described that you did to put yourself in a position of being lucky it's funny that you still view it as being lucky. I mean, you started a club, you you conquered English, you switched universities, you went to this conference, you found this conference, you're on the Bloomberg terminal. I mean, this is this is not luck. These are things these are choices you make. Yeah, I mean, choices and and luck. It's, it's I think you know, I took the opportunity to be prepared for when luck smiled and came my way and I was ready to execute. I remember my final interview at the Goldman Sachs Super Day was with a head of HCM, which is our HR department. Mm. And she said, hey, listen, everybody's reviewing you well, but why should we take you? And I said, well, I want to do anything I can to get the job. And there was a phone in the interview room. And I was like, I would call Lloyd Blankfein right now and ask him for the spot. And she said, "Okay, let's role play. So I picked up the phone. And I pitched this imaginary Lloyd as to why he should hire me as an intern. And I think that did it. I think that did it. That, that got oh me my the job. God. That is amazing. I would, have, I would love to hear now what they thought of you at that time, because that is not your typical. But, you know, you didn't have a typical background. You didn't come from a privileged background to be complacent about this opportunity. Yeah, and I noticed that during the Super Day, a lot of the other uh, candidates, you know, they were really stressing out 
they were really thinking about the best answers. And you could see that, you know, they had been really trained by the career services office. Whereas my career services office had no idea what Goldman was. So I just approached it like where I approach everything, which is being myself. I thought that was the peak. I'm like, okay, some people peak in high school. Uh, this is me peaking right now. Goldman Sachs flew me up, put me in a, in a hotel in Times Square. I thought Times Square was the biggest thing ever. And um, I'm wearing a suit and a tie in their office. This is it. Like, enjoy it. Take it all in. And yeah, I guess looking back, it's kind of like who I've been. So your third trade that we should talk about is how you got into this space in the first place. So you're working at Goldman. You have this dream job. You're on Wall Street. You did that for what, about 10 years? So I was at Goldman for five. And then Barclays hired me to go launch the equity sales desk for LATAM. So I spent the last seven years at Barclays. I'm sitting there on the desk. I was working from the office through COVID. And I was writing morning notes that were, I think you can tell my personality is a little different. And so I was writing morning notes that were challenging people in the way they thought about different things. I think I was one of the first people on Wall Street to write about the Reddit, you know, YOLO option buying mm-hmm. on the hoodies. So I writing about that early on because I was into the internet forums and doing kind of like thinking of ways to, to think about the market differently because it was definitely a different kind of market. And so one day I started reading at, about DeFi. Actually, Raul had been speaking a lot about DeFi on Real Vision and, and mentioning it on Global Macro Investor. So I took a liking to it. I had previously, during the market crash, bought Ether and Bitcoin because it didn't go to zero. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Okay, so this is your third trade. So your third trade is buying Bitcoin and ETH. So you're already, that was your dipping your toe into this digital. How did that even get on your radar? Well, I missed it the first time around. Our uh, junior FX trader went on to start a small little crypto exchange called Coinbase. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we stayed in touch for about a year after he left. Very, really good guy, very smart, obviously. He told me, he's like, hey, look into this, download Coinbase. I tried to, then my bank didn't let me wire money in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like, oh, whatever. So I would have, I, I like to think that I would have bought Bitcoin at 10 um, and held it, but I probably would have sold it at 20. Because that was the world you were in at I'm, that I'm point. I'm a genius, yes. So I missed it. I just watched it from a distance, being in the macro world, you know, 17, 18, it went to the forefront. I kept my eye on it. During the COVID crash, it didn't go to zero. And that to me was really meaningful. I knew smart people like Fred, who were still, you know, very, very much into the ecosystem and still building stuff. And so I was like, okay, well, this seems like something where I want to put my money in during these times. And I went in, I think it was the day after the big crash. And I I bought a nice chunk of both without thinking too much about it. The world, as you remember, like we were going crazy, work was going crazy. So I just bought some and then I put it on like buy every two weeks by X amount. And I forgot about it. I forgot about it because I was really focused on writing my notes and finding smart mm-hmm. trades and just not dying. Like New York City became, yeah. you know, some something out of like a zombie movie. Yeah. And, and I totally forgot about it until the fall when DeFi had really kicked off and everybody was mentioning it. And so I decided to to start looking at it again. 
And so I'm assuming that was one of your best trades. And did that success change your perception about yourself or the markets? When did you realize this was this was going well? I opened the Coinbase app again, like in September, and I was shocked to see amount that was in there. I <laughs> told my wife, I'm like, I showed her, she's like, what is that? And I'm like, it's our crypto. She's like, well, <laughs> um, it, 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 no, it didn't change my perception about myself. Again, I think, you know, it was, it was a lucky decision back then, uh, smart decision. It made me want to look more into it. And I really started digging more into into DeFi, reach out to Raw. He sent some material over. I started reading more, uh, subscribing to newsletters and starting to, to read more news about crypto and research a little bit more, which changed my life in that it led me to the industry and to NFTs. So your fourth trade is one of your worst, and that's selling your 401k and equity exposure, but continuing to short the market as it exploded higher. This is really interesting, and you're a really important person to talk to right now, I think, because you've got a foot in both worlds. Because, one, you know, obviously a lot of your trades are in the NFT and the crypto that we're talking about today, but you've got this trade that is more in the macro world. And people think they're totally distinct, and now I think we're finding more and more that they're not really and some of the same rules apply, even though it's different assets and that maybe there's correlation that we didn't know about. So what's happening at the time that you make this trade? Okay, so I'll take you back again to right before COVID crash. I was you know, really into macro, doing a lot of research, very lucky to have very, very smart clients. And one of them mentioned, hey, you know, this Wuhan place in China is as big as an economically important for uh, GDP as is Chicago in the States. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, that is actually super interesting. And so I started doing more research and I realized, hey, the market's going to, it has no idea what's coming. I sold all my equity exposure, 401k, personal portfolio. I shorted a little bit on top and yeah, that worked out. It was really, really good. Now, I never changed my framework in realizing that you know the Fed was going to come in and just spray mm. this cash. I thought the economy was going to absorb it and it was going to be used to replace wages, right? And like people were like, okay, to live on businesses playing, you know, paying payroll with all these programs. I never thought it was going to flow into financial assets. And mm. so I kept shorting the market, uh, the equity market, April, May, June was very, very painful. And that's where I learned that, you know, flow the mentals, defeat the fundamentals in the short term. And that the Fed, you know, really did a good job in helping the market and the economy feel better. And so funny, what made my crypto trade work out great made my equity trade, you know, just completely go in my face. And again, I wasn't paying attention to crypto. And so I think net net that 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 moment in time was positive for me, but I was really bummed out that this, you know, this whole, I'm like, oh, I'm really good at macro. I'm really good at equities. Mm. Uh, yeah, that did not work. And so I felt a, a pit in my stomach when I realized, you know, I was so wrong. And, and that was my worst financial trade to that date before I lost the punk yesterday. <laughs> so, I mean, shorting anything is really hard though, right? Because that, I mean, traditionally shorting markets is tough because you can, it can change and you can be really really squeezed. Yeah, I had never shorted anything before, uh, mm. except for in February. And so recency bias, like, well, you got it really, really right. Why should you not be right again? And so 
everybody I spoke to felt like it was the right trade. I think everybody got their faces ripped off. Um, mm-hmm. Some people turn around a lot quicker than others, like myself did. But yeah, that's why I think shorting it's kind of such like an art even not really to be tried but just almost anybody also really messes with your head when things really start going wrong and it's hard to just take the loss and move on yeah it really is so what do you think you learned from that what was your big takeaway from that trade keep the recency bias on check so if you did well recently don't assume it's going to work again exactly that i think was the biggest thing and then the other thing just look at what everybody else is saying. I was really focused on listening to like three or four smart people, but then the other 96 people in the room of 100 were saying, oh, we're going to rip higher because there's all this money coming into the system. So Mm. I thought, no, I'm smarter than you guys, uh, which I wasn't. And by the way, like short term is all flows. And so the flow was extremely, extremely one way. And you could see it. You could see it in the data. And it was like staring me in the face every single day. You can see the YOLO call buying that was driving up you know, valuations and everything. Nothing mattered. It was just people degening the, with their stimulus. Yeah, totally, totally missed that because I felt like they were wrong. And I was the one who was not really paying attention to the full picture. Mm. So do you think you have a better understanding now, like as you learn these lessons, do you think that that informs your future decision-making? I would hope so. That's the goal, to learn from the mistakes and, and apply them. But I also realize, you know, it's not always the case. And we're really good at fooling ourselves, I think, not just in financial decisions, but in a bunch of other decisions. I think we're, you know, hopeful by nature and we are sometimes delusional. And and it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because a lot of those delusions have worked out to be great technological innovations. It's what drives humans to kind of like improve and be better, but sometimes, you know, they don't really work out. Yeah, I'm trying to learn from them. I think I'm better today than I was two years ago, but still a little bit more work left to do. Yeah. You said something in your tweet threads as well about feeling guilty about playing with internet money when so so many people in the world have so little. Um, This is a theme that is consistent with you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a very different environment. Never felt like we were missing anything. My parents always tried their best to give us everything we could. But I remember, you know, vacation, my sister and I were super excited. One year we went to a Motel 6 for vacation and we thought it was a resort because it had a little pool. And then the next year we got upgraded to a Days Inn and it was even better because they gave you coloring books at check-in. And so, you know, obviously going back and thinking, wow, like, you know, it, it was such a different world. So, yeah, when I take a step back and I look at everything, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, that's a lot of money. And there's people out there that really need the money. And like, you know, this is just it's just the game at some point. Right. And do I need a JPEG to be my digital identity? Well, not really. I got a roof over my head. I got food. I got health. And so sometimes I do feel like, wow, I mean, 
and it's become also kind of like a reason to do it. Like I, I want to mm-hmm. make all this money because I want to help my family. I want to set my nieces up for life. I want to make sure my parents live out the rest of the days in the best way possible, just the way, you know, they did for my sister and I. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to keep on going for that. Like, I don't want cars, watches, houses. Yeah, they'll be really nice to have. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, a happy, healthy family, I think it's what what drives me. But it's that kind of like, okay, still a lot of money. It plays to both both sides, I think. Do you think that you have some people, I mean, it's a funny business to be in if you have this fraught relationship with money because it feels bad when you lose it but sometimes it feels bad when you make it too yeah i've never felt bad about making it well that's <laughs> <Yeah>. good <laughs> yeah i think that'd that's be good really to hear sergio <laughs> that'd be really challenging um but maybe did what to do with it when you make it maybe that's a better way to put it yes yes and and you know for sure one of the reasons why i came into crypto and you know getting lucky and buying up the bottom was it was so easy to send money back home to my family. You could do it on a weekend at 8 p.m., especially during COVID. It was hard to go to the bank. You needed an mm-hmm. appointment. And sending money to a border town in Mexico requires all kinds of KYT and compliance checks. So I have to go to the you know branch, passport, why are you wiring this money? Is it over $10,000 when this like the treasury? And it's like, I'm just trying to help my family, you know? And so with crypto, you don't have that. Send money to my mom's Ether uh, wallet. She uh, frames it via Mexican exchange and that's it. And so, yeah, it's, it's again, both sides. There's really, really good things as well. Well, Sergio, I think it's going to be really fun to see what you do. And I hope that we get to talk a little bit more about that because I think that you're not the only one. I think there are a lot of people who are using this opportunity to try to build something fantastic. And I encourage them all to get in touch with us because I think we need to hear more about those stories. Sergio, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on My Life in Four Trades. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I love the Real Vision family. And so thank you very much for letting me continue to share my story in bits and pieces here and there. It's been, uh, it's been an awesome, awesome afternoon. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.